And now, children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he has appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. And he who is righteous, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son that God has appeared to destroy the works of the devil, no one born of God makes practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Thank you. Alrighty. Typically, I'm wrapping up the sermon by about 10.50, so now we're starting the sermon at 10.50, so bear with me. I'll try and keep it short. Elementary uh, age kids, y'all are welcome as you're already going to Kidlands. Um, so thank you, Preston, for reading that passage for us today as we continue our sermon series in First John. Um, so recently, probably in the past two or three years, uh, I guess ever since, no, I guess three or four years now, we're about to celebrate our four-year anniversary. So ever since Andrea and I have been married, um, I've become sort of a movie enthusiast. Um, I used to hate watching movies, uh, but whenever I married Andrea, who grew up watching movies, family movie night, things like that, uh, I really began to appreciate good films. And so on a regular Tuesday night, we'll put Harper down, and if we're feeling like we just want to veg out, had a rough day, want to veg out in front of the TV, um, Andrea is now bent more towards a TV series, and as soon as Harper's down, I say, hey babe, what movie do you want to watch? It's about 8.30 or 9 o'clock at that time, but I'm willing, hopefully, if I don't fall asleep, to stay up and watch a good movie, and she always will say, uh, honestly, babe, I haven't thought about that at all. Wasn't thinking we were going to watch a movie, but did you have a movie in mind? And every time, this is my answer. Not really. I just want it to be good, and I don't want to have seen it before. I don't want to re-watch a movie. So that's my answer. I want it to be good, and I don't want to have seen it before. Now, I know some of you in here, if you have gone on the men's retreat uh, in the past couple of years, are probably like, oh, okay, that means that you've probably watch Star Wars now for the first time. No, the, the, what I said was I want to watch something that's good, not necessarily just something I haven't, anyways. Uh, so, but I, I really it began to enjoy film. Sorry, I had to take a little jab at Star Wars. Never watched a single one, so I don't know what I'm missing. But anyways, 
Um, and so the reason why I like films now is because something happened whenever we got married. Andrea introduced me to what is known as widescreen, okay? Before, any time that I would watch a movie in the theaters, I loved it, loved the experience, because it, it seemed like that's what it was made for, that huge screen. And I used to think that it was like the surround sound was the thing that really made the environment uh, entertaining. And then I began watching movies with her and realized, oh, I probably shouldn't be watching this on the full screen mode, I should be watching on the wide screen, because that's a better representation of what the filmmakers were actually trying to accomplish in, in capturing these different scenes and, and this different story. And so I've always wondered, okay, why is it a widescreen? Well, if you think about it, the, the movie, the filmmakers, they're, they're actually pretty smart um, because, let, let me put it this way. So if I go like this, I can't see my hand, right? It's about, what, maybe eight, 10 inches above my iframe or line of sight. But if I go like this and I'm staring straight ahead, about three feet away from my head, I can see my fingers twinkling, twirling, whatever you want to call that. But I, my peripheral sight is what really makes my world around me, right? Same with you. So we are, we are watching our lives unfold in front of us in a widescreen uh, type of, I guess, screen or vision, line of sight, whatever you want to say. It's a widescreen view of the world. And so the filmmakers are like, hey, this is the way everybody sees the world. Let's captivate them. Let's bring them into this world, this story, by making it just how they see the world. And so then I started beginning to really enjoy films. The idea today, what I really want to accomplish in the next 15, 20 minutes is for all of us to finally be able to experience and see, like John says here in verse one, to see what kind of love the Father has for us that he would call us children of God. I think we're seeing in different ways, whether it be through our theology, whether it be through community, we experience this love of God in more of a zoomed in view. The idea is that the missing piece is what we do with that, the practice that we have in our life that I think will allow us to finally see clearly what this love actually is. So again, 15, 20 minutes, I usually have three or four points. Today we're gonna have two points. So the way in which we're gonna see that today is uh, through these two points. Number one is gonna be in what Jesus has accomplished. And then number two, what Jesus will accomplish and in our responses to, to both of them. So what Jesus has accomplished would be in verses five and eight. But now before I get into those verses specifically, I wanna kind of address the elephant in the room, uh, so to speak, the verse number six. So look at that. It says, no one who abides in him, meaning Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. I don't know about you, that lands pretty heavy on me because I understand that since I've come to know Christ and from what I understand, I've, I've seen and experienced Christ transform my heart, there hasn't been a week that I've gone without sinning. 
I'd be lucky if there's a day that goes by without me willfully sinning. And, and even more so, I'd be lucky if there's an hour or a minute that goes by where I don't sin in my heart. And I think as we read this, as believers, this text sits really heavy on our hearts because we feel this conviction come upon us because we understand that John's words, they're true. They're not false. It's not like he's saying something that's completely foreign and way out there. We understand that Christ has no sin in him and there's no sin that exists within him. So if we claim to be within Christ, what do we do with our sin? How are we going to kind of work our way around this verse? How are we going to explain this verse away? And I think what we need to do is not try and explain the verse away or not try to resolve the verse with the rest of scripture, but let this verse resolve our minds and our hearts to a life of righteousness, a life of holy living. In order to do that, we need to understand what Jesus has already done, what he has accomplished, and then how God's children respond to this. So verses five and eight. Verse five says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Continue on in verse eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So why did Jesus come and what did he accomplish when he came it's to, in verse 5, take away sins, and then in verse 8, to destroy the works of the devil. And the reason why you and I are in here today and the reason why people are watching this on our YouTube channel is because we know that what Jesus set out to accomplish, he did just that. He didn't come just to live a, a morally upright life or, or give us an example on how we ought to to live, yes, that, that is true, he did that. But what he accomplished was taking away sins and he destroyed the works of the devil. And where did he accomplish that? On the cross, through his death. Now the world, like it says, the beginning of chapter three, the world does not know this. And then and Jesus says that, hey, don't be surprised when the world hates you because it hated me first. Or with the, ver the words of uh, James that says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. What do we do with the world that is around us? How, how do we make this Jesus clear to them? How do we make it clear us. One thing I love about my wife, uh, just a little small thing that she does, is while I'm working and she's working at home and taking care of Harper, she'll send me things that she either runs across on social media or gets sent to her that's funny so that it can kind of liven up my day a little bit, make me laugh and not take things so seriously, which I tend to do. Um, and so one thing that she sent me this past week was a, a picture and I didn't have the foresight to actually have it up on the screen, so I'm just gonna kind of paint the, the meme for you. So on one side, and there's a lot of political propaganda behind it, so just 
bear with me. Uh, on one side, there is a, a representation of what Jesus m- might have looked like. And then on the other side, there's that Michelangelo representation of what he thought Jesus looked like, this white English man. That white English man also had a certain hat on with a certain political message, uh, and he had an American flag in his hand. So it was like, hey, this is definitely not what Jesus looked like, but this right here uh, might have been what he looked like. And the one on the left was, honestly, it looked like it was an African-American with Jewish hair, okay? So you kind of understand where this is going. On one side, I actually have it right here, so I'll read it. On one side, it says, things that Jesus was. And it says, brown, okay? Jewish, all right? Middle Eastern, yep. And it kind of take a, a little bit of, a, of a liberty here by saying, a child refugee, okay? He was poor, kind of grew up middle, lower class, but sure. Uh, he was homeless. Yeah, I mean, during his ministry, he was going from town to town, so technically, sure. Uh, and then they said, an advocate of loving your neighbor. So th- these are the things that Jesus was. This is stuff that they are ready to admit. The world is ready to admit that Jesus was these things. And it says, Jesus was not. And these are just blatantly obvious. He was not white. He was not American. He was not racist. He was not nationalistic. He was not rich nor was he full of hate. And the last thing they said is that he wasn't a Christian. Okay, I mean, he's Jesus Christ, sure. Yeah, he wasn't a Christian, he was Jewish. So, but you see what they're trying to do. They're, they're pushing this political message across, but what they're doing is they're using the life of Christ to get their message across. Now, they can do that with the life of Christ because you can look at Jesus and you can say that, yeah, he was a morally upright person. He he had good teachings. He taught to love your neighbor as yourself. But what they can't do is they cannot look at the death of Christ and go away unchanged. You see, the death of Christ is what causes a sinner to respond. You either have to respond in faith and repentance or you walk away in obstinance to God. The life of Christ might be a feel-good story, but the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is where we have our power. That's where the world does not know us because it did not know him. So how do we respond to this? How do we, if we claim to be children of God, respond to the death and resurrection of Christ? Only within that power that raised him. That power allows us to finally be able to see. We're finally able to see this love that the Father has given to us. What do we do once we see? We go on living a life that is completely changed by the work of Christ. Now look at that verse again, verse 6. It says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, I'm going to give you a quick seminary lesson uh, free of charge This is something I've learned in the past three years, okay? You ready for it? This is it. 
the writers of our Bible are not dumb people, okay? That's your seminary lesson for the day. They're not dumb. So when, when John writes this, it's not as if he completely forgot what he told us in chapter one, verse eight, which says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So then he goes and says that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So which one is it, John? Is it that we are calling our, we're being liars if we say we don't have sin in us, but then you're telling us that we shouldn't have sin in us? Let's look at verse four. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now focus on the word practice and focus on lawlessness. Now, Sin is described in a few different ways throughout scripture. There's missing the mark. There's idolatry against God, worshiping something else. And then there's this lawlessness idea where you completely object to the law and the lawgiver. So you hear a command and you say, no, 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 no. I'm going to do the opposite of that. Not only that, but you oppose the person who gave the command. This is completely opposite of what Jesus says in John chapter 10 when he says that my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. I'll give you an example. My, uh, our daughter, Harper, right back there, two and a half years old, uh, is not perfect at listening and obeying. I probably tell her, and this is while I'm working away from the house uh, and I come home and parent her for an hour and a half before she goes to bed, uh, I probably tell her maybe five, 10 times that she needs to listen and obey. Harper, listen and obey. And she goes, okay, Harper, be kind. Harper, listen and obey. Well, it, usually if she's doing something that we've told her not to do, it usually takes about two or three times for her to finally listen and obey, finally understand what she's supposed to do and respond to that. Now, if she were never to listen and obey, that would be a testament not only to the hardness of her heart, but to her obstinance against me and against her mother. Her obeying is evidence that she is a child of Aaron and Andrea. She hears my voice and she obeys. We hear God's voice and we obey. We, we seek righteousness. We seek to love God because we understand that he first loved us. Jesus says that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Can we say that of ourselves this morning? Can we say that in light of the work that Jesus did, displaying the love of the Father on the cross, that we listen and obey? John's passage here this morning is not contradicting what he said in chapter 1, but it's reinforcing that. And saying, hey, you know that there is sin in you. And you know that you need to rely on the power of God to rid that of your life. Commentator says that doing confirms being. Doing confirms being. If we call ourselves children of God, if we say that we are born of God, where is the fruit? Where is the fruit? Now, number two, finally, what Jesus 
will accomplish. So we live in light and we respond to what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Now what Jesus will accomplish. And you see this in verses uh, two and three of chapter three. It says this, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John is saying here is that in order to live a life marked with righteousness and holiness, it doesn't mean that, that we're going to be completely freed from the sinful world that we're in. No, it means that we're going to seek after the one who accomplished it on our behalf. None of our works are going to save us. So don't hear this and, and, and hear me say that you should strive after holiness and righteousness and think that I'm saying that that's somehow going to earn your salvation. That's not. But to say that Jesus has done all the work for you and you can just sit back and enjoy the sin that you're already in, what you're doing is not only cheapening the grace of God, but you're completely ignoring the grace of God. The power that has saved you has saved you to a life of righteousness and holiness. May we seek after that because we're seeking after the one who is pure and in doing so, we ourselves will be purified so that when the day comes and we stand before him, we might stand before him with confidence and not shying away, not shrinking back because of our shame that we have from a sinful life. This lawlessness that it talks about is a willful disobedience, completely diving in to the deep end of sin and feeling no remorse. And John tells us in verses nine, that verses nine and 10, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, this practice of sinning, continually doing it. For God's seed abides in him, the, the spirit of the Lord abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Notice that word, cannot. See, all throughout this letter so far, John has been talking about the inconsistencies of, of living in sin while also saying that you belong to Christ. Now he goes as far to say, yes, we're, we're going to sin in this life. And that's an inconsistent example of your testimony to the Lord and his power in your life. That's inconsistent. It doesn't match up. But it is impossible, not just inconsistent, it is impossible for a true child of God, born of God, born of the Spirit, born again, as Jesus says in John chapter three, it is impossible for them to continue in a life of sin. So what do we do? How do we respond? We know that we cannot go on sinning we know that our hope must be put in Christ. And that's the question that we have to ask ourselves based off the text this morning. Is your hope, is my hope found in Christ and Christ alone? Because if it is, then it's found in the works that he has already accomplished. And we live this life so that we might have the confidence to stand before him whenever he returns. And he can say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
It's not a life that you're trying to, to reach this certain level so that God could approve of us. John does away with that in verse 1. He says, look at the love that he has given us, that he would call us, ones who are marked with sin, sons and daughters. Because of that love, here's how you ought to respond. Live a life marked by obedience. The children of the devil are going to continue in their obstinance against God and continue in their willfulness of sin against God. May we not get in bed with the world and see no distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil. May we live confidently and righteously knowing that we have been born of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for this time. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the conviction that it has brought on my own heart um, this past week, Lord. Um, Father, may we be a people, may we be a church that seeks righteousness for your glory. Lord, may we seek righteousness so that we can finally see the picture that you have set before us. We zoom out and get the whole picture of your love for us. The only way we can do that is, is when the, the filth and the gunk of sin is wiped away. And so, Lord, we look forward to the day where we not only see it, but, Lord, that we get to be within it. Father, we look forward to the day that we get to be with you. We thank you for your son, and we thank you that it's through his power, through his obedience, and through your grace that we get to have union with you. We get to have a relationship with you. Father, may we be changed by that relationship. We pray this in his name. Amen.